Welcome to LDS Perspectives Podcast, where we interview amazing LDS scholars about Mormon history, doctrine, and culture. Laura Harris-Hales, and I'm here today with Daniel L. Belknap to talk about wisdom literature in the ancient Near East. Dan Belknap is an assistant professor of ancient scripture at BYU. He received a Ph.D. in Northwest Semitics from the University of Chicago. Since coming to BYU, he has taught courses in the Book of Mormon, Old Testament, New Testament, Pearl of Great Price, and Teachings of the Living Prophets. But his specialty is in the Hebrew Bible, Ugaritic texts, and ritual studies. He's focused his research on cultural and sociological influences in the Book of Mormon, the use of ritual in ancient and contemporary contexts, doctrines of ascension and theosis in ancient Near East and late antiquity, and comparative cosmologies. I feel like today's topic is a little bit light for you, Dan. Well, I don't know about that. This is an area of the Bible that I don't necessarily do most of my work in. Dan, what is wisdom literature? Wisdom literature is a term that is used to describe a number of texts that are often understood as maybe advice. They're not prophetic works. They're not like Isaiah. They're not like Ezekiel. They're not that type of advice. They're not prose texts the same way that you would think in First and Second Kings. So they don't have historical value the same way. There are texts that I like to think of provide insight into maybe the daily living aspect of it, or what were the morals and ethics of these individuals, and what did they think was important in terms of their interactions with one another. So wisdom literature isn't the same thing on par with other, and so we don't often engage with it the same way. We kind of tend to treat it lower than maybe the prophetic works or the historical works of the Bible. The Bible is a library. The wisdom literature is part of that library or part of the apocryphal works or part of other collections. Is there a time when wisdom literature was generally written, or was it written in the whole thousand-year time span of books of the Bible? Well, as you probably know, and it's probably been said by others uh, on different podcasts, the compilation of the Bible is a bit tricky. We have some texts that are clearly older than others, but we know that they're all being put together eventually. Even if you wanted to say the Septuagint is the first real collection of the Bible, it's probably not. There are probably older collections elsewhere. In fact, the Book of Mormon suggests that there was a collection, the brass plates which contained prophetic material with historical stuff. So we know they probably had other collections of biblical text. But with that said, you've got a number of different pieces from different time periods being collated, being edited over time, and then finally being put together into an entire body of work. When it comes to wisdom literature, what's intriguing about it is, I would say, Historically, older scholarship would have probably said, oh, it's more recent. This is more recent evidence uh, or more recent type of text. It had language in it that's newer language. It's newer Hebrew or, or Aramaic. Some of the texts could have been Aramaic. And then they compare them to other ancient Near Eastern texts that are around there. For instance, some of the wisdom literature from Egypt and Mesopotamia, and those tended to be later too. So I would say traditionally the scholarship has been that it was older. But as ancient Near Eastern studies have progressed and moved on, I think we're beginning to see that wisdom literature actually is a pretty old, early form of literature. Especially like in the case of Job, that story you see in ancient Near Eastern culture for a long time before it's actually written down. Who wrote wisdom literature? 
That's a great question. The text will tell you that this is the, the wisdom of Solomon, for instance, in the Bible, that the Proverbs were written by the wisdom of Solomon. Ecclesiastes is written by the preacher, which is often associated with Solomon. So they're clearly ascribing authorship to well-known individuals. Why Solomon? Probably because we have that famous story of him asking for wisdom. The well-known biblical tale of Solomon, who's given the opportunity to receive a gift from God, he chooses, I want wisdom. And then we have a series of stories in the Bible that deal with that. The two women that bring the child, and he says, well, if you're both claiming motherhood, let's cut the baby in half, right? This is one of those wisdom tales. And then you have some apocryphal, pseudographical stories of Solomon doing wisdom. So not a surprise that these collections of sayings or moral and ethical teachings about how to live a good life are being ascribed to Solomon in the Old Testament. With that said, is he the author of them? Who can say? Probably not. But then again, the text is ascribing him the authorship of these things. This is probably a collection of different sayings across a number of ages, different times by different authors. And that's what you're seeing in terms of at least Proverbs. When you look at Proverbs, that's what you're probably looking at. Some people have said maybe that sages wrote these, just generic sages in the court. What do you feel about that? One of the reasons why they might suggest this, or what we're ultimately looking at, are a group of scribes. This is across the ancient Near East. We've got Egypt and Mesopotamian scribes, Hittite scribes, though the Hittites aren't really around anymore by the biblical period, or at least the monarchical uh, biblical period. But these scribes, what they did is the number of texts that we have are scribal exercises, or even the copies that we have are, are realizing these aren't the final copies or the final versions of the text that we're looking at. So these are scribes writing this stuff down. And when you look at some of the Mesopotamian texts in particular that talk about the scribal tradition, they describe what it's like to be a scribe and the learning process of what it means to be a scribe. And in a lot of those cases, it's very possible that some of this literature is arising from scribal exercise and scribal tradition. Most of the Proverbs, for instance, in the Bible are short. They're pithy, right? Which means they're easy to write. But they can use big vocabulary, but it's also repetitive stuff. And that repetition would have helped describe, memorize language and, and know how to work within a language. We tend to think of scribe as one who simply copies down stuff, but when you look at the text from the ancient Near East, it becomes quite clear that scribes are actually expected to compose and to be able to take a concept or an idea and then write that idea down in another fashion, oftentimes another language, right? So learning how to write and think in a particular language becomes extremely important. I know this isn't necessarily a wisdom literature text, but one of the letters that we have from Ugarit is clearly a scribal exercise. Because when you look at the letter, the individual goes through the entire epistolary formula or the way in which you write a letter, right? So we write a letter now in a formal setting and you do this. Well, they did that back then too. And what's fascinating is the message that he writes, presumably he, that scribe wrote down every variant of the verb. He used it as a volition, as he used it as a command, he used it here, here, and here. Clearly, he's practicing how to write these verbal forms within a letter formula. If we see that same thing going on in wisdom literature, it's possible that some of this material is just being handed down from scribe to scribe to scribe. What I would add to that is that in many cases, the advice that's given is considered to be father and son. As a good father, this is what I'm going to suggest to you. As a good son, this is what you're going to do. And in many cases, it has to do with a profession, right? It's practical advice. 
the Egyptian wisdom literature in particular demonstrates this. This is advice to help you if you're going to have a mid-level court position, perhaps move up to a higher court position. What happens if for some reason you get moved to a lower court position? These have practical advice. If you were a fisherman in Egypt, this isn't as important to you as it would be to a scribe who has to interact with these different social hierarchies. What would you consider wisdom literature in the Old Testament? Books that you have in terms of wisdom literature would be Proverbs, obviously, Ecclesiastes, Job is considered that. Once you get out of those three, then you can end up in almost more quasi-type of characteristics, or there's a lot more overlap with some of the others. Song of Solomon occupies that kind of weird area of what exactly are we going to qualify that as? It's not prophetic. It's not historical. It's not really wisdom advice either. So wisdom literature sometimes becomes the eclectic everything that doesn't fit the historical and prophetic material. Now, that's not exactly true in its fullest context, but when we think of the Bible, we tend to think of it that way. Where would Psalms fit in there? Psalms are often treated as their own type of literature. At least in biblical studies, that would be the case. And in the Bible, they treat it differently too. The Psalms are different. These have to do with temple worship and the worship experience overall. They can be very personal. They can describe the emotions of an individual who's in distress or suffering in some fashion. They denote the relationship the one has with God. They denote the way in which they think God's going to be able to interact with them. They denote, as I already said, the role and value of worship and what was worship for ancient Israel. When we think about worship, we rarely often go to the Psalms to find what was their worship practice like. We go to Leviticus, which describes the sacrificial process, and we go, well, that's what they did. Christ comes. We don't do that anymore. Or we talk about Isaiah and some of these others. But the Psalms, if you really want a good sense of what ancient Israel, what their worship was like, what they experienced when they worshiped, what they thought the relationship with God was, the Psalms are pretty good for that. So they're not exactly wisdom literature in that same format. It's not advice the same way. But with that said, there are wisdom themes that you can find in Psalms, no question. It's the one place in the Old Testament where you know you can find devotional material. Those of us who are used to reading the Book of Mormon in the New Testament, we think, oh, the Old Testament was read for devotional reasons, which isn't entirely accurate. Sure. You know, it's funny that you say that. President Benson once had said that the Psalms have a particular balm for the soul. And I like that. As a scholar, I also like exploring it to find out what Israel's worship was like. And, and we don't think about it much, but read the Psalms and there's a lot of singing. There's a lot of praising. There's a lot of joy that's involved in this. And again, primarily from a Christian perspective, and Latter-day Saints fit within that, we tend to think of the law of Moses and the practice of the law of Moses is as my students would say, letter of the law, and that you've got to follow these things. But when you read the Psalms, they didn't see it that way. This was an expression of joy, of fulfillment, of even revelation. If you look in the Psalms, there are many of them that they expect a revelatory experience at the temple. And that's not, it's not radically different. Wonderful. What major themes and concepts can we find in wisdom literature? You can divide wisdom literature into a couple categories, and of course you're asking primarily about biblical literature, but one would be practical, just practical advice. And that's particularly true when you look across the ancient Near Eastern wisdom literature. As I mentioned earlier, wisdom literature was being written by these scribes who engaged in the politics and the court and the culture of these different civilizations. And when they would do that, that advice showed that. I mean, for instance, some of the Egyptian practical literature was simply things like, Keep your mouth shut. 
Don't speak up as much. Don't always speak your opinion. Listen to everybody else and then do it. I mean, that's just practical advice. It's not bad advice either, but it's good practical advice. There's no theological meaning behind that. You've got practical advice, and the Psalms do that too, right? A prudent man does the following things. A fool does the following things. So you have just good practical advice about how to get along with other people. It's not exactly the same. It's not wisdom literature per se, but the closest thing you might have in the New Testament is, for instance, James. James includes a lot of practical advice about how Christians should get along with other people, including other Christians. You've got practical advice that you can find in in Proverbs and elsewhere. I would then add that you have another set of literature that describes, and this can be intermingled, same chapter of Proverbs might have it, but includes practical advice for a relationship with God. And for ancient Israel, that would be practical advice, right? What did you do? A, a, a true man, a prudent man fears the Lord. He understands the law. He keeps the commandments type of thing. That's good practical theological advice as well. And so you can have that type of practical advice, not just how to get along in terms of the world around you, but also how to get along with God. And that's pretty good advice. Outside of that, then you deal with other themes, and one would be the importance of wisdom. Now, this is pretty specific to Proverbs. Chapters 1 through 9 of Proverbs, for instance, you're introduced to wisdom, what biblical scholars call lady wisdom, because she's personified and she's treated as an individual. And the contrast there is between a fool versus lady wisdom. And Lady Wisdom is uh, very hospitable. She's very caring. Her worth is greater than rubies and diamonds. And she's existed before the world was. You've got a passage in, in those chapters that describes wisdom as involved in the creation of the earth with God. And it existed before the mountains. And that wisdom was there. Part of that might simply reflect, like I said, wisdom literature is often thought of as a later form of literature, but it uses some very early themes. And in fact, by virtue of that, could very well be much earlier. Like there was an earlier set of texts out there that became the form, the, the wisdom literature that we have now. The creation story is a big one for that reason. Again, we don't often think of it, at least from an ancient Near Eastern perspective, creation is where God takes unorganized stuff and organizes it into a cosmos, for lack of a better term. And that's true. But there's always been what's known as this and here's a vocab word for the day, the sapiential approach to this, or a thinking that there's a mental process that's involved in these things. Our creation story has that in the sense that God spoke and these things came into being. He's not manipulating it with his hands. He's manipulating it through a thinking process. It's already got a sapiential theme to it. And what you would have is people then develop that even further. So the creation story became a way to demonstrate organization, structure, and that's as useful for the social environment as much as it is the physical environment. So it's no surprise to see creation themes showing up within here too. The themes in the wisdom literature that you find in the Bible are themes that you find in the ancient Near East in general, aren't they? They can be. In Israelite wisdom literature, the individuals within that literature, right? So, so we don't know who they are. There's a father, there's a son, there's a mother. There's, these individuals, they're just anonymous Israelite figures, literary figures. Let's put it that way. The literary figures have a different relationship with deity than you see Egyptian literary wisdom figures. Deity may show up in Egyptian wisdom literature, 
but they don't play a particular role the same way. In fact, much of Egyptian literature is going to be practical advice, how to get along in court, how to get along with your fellow man, how to move up in court. Israelite wisdom literature is different in that the relationship with deity is different. Same thing in Mesopotamia. The Israelite relationship is different with their deity. Now, it's possible that you've got a different relationship with deity in Ammon and Moab and some of these other smaller states around Israel too. Most of these have a recognition of multiple gods, but one particular god that they work with, right? Getting to Egypt and Mesopotamia, both of these other cultures have polytheism and a true polytheistic, and meaning you've got multiple gods that are equal in significance. In Moab and Ammon, these smaller states around Israel, you might believe in multiple gods, but there's really only one God that you interact with. And that's certainly the case in ancient Israel, where the only God you interact with is Jehovah. These individuals seem to have a different relationship. It's possible if we did find Moabite or Ammonite wisdom literature, it would look very similar to Israelite. But we don't. All we have is Israelite wisdom literature for this region. And when you recognize that, maybe that's where that difference is coming from. But what you certainly see is that they have a different relationship, a closer relationship, a relationship where they expect certain things from the divine beings in a way that you're not seeing in these other larger cultures. Using the example of Job, he has certain expectations of how God will interact in his life. But also, major themes that are present in other Old Testament books are missing from wisdom literature such as redemption history, the Torah, or election, which has caused some people to say maybe these are secular and have been passed around. What do you think about that? To that argument, I can understand it, but anyone who reads Job or reads Proverbs, for instance, there's a lot of instruction in there that I would call theological, right? It's not exactly the same. It's not the redemption history. It, it doesn't have that same relationship. But I think one of the reasons is, is that wisdom literature is very personal. Now, I get that it's practical advice that anyone can use, but what it deals with is one-on-one relationships. It doesn't describe group relationships. So when you're talking about the redemption of a people, that's just not going to simply be a part of wisdom literature. It isn't a part of any culture. You could say the same thing about Egypt or Mesopotamia. And I've already made the case that they're already more secular, but I think one of the reasons is it's a one-on-one relationship that's being described socially within those texts. With that said... Israel includes God in almost all of that. So when you go through the Proverbs, you will find places that says, the prudent man is the one who fears the Lord. The prudent man is the one who knows the secrets of the Lord. The wise man is the one who knows the law. And at that point, I'm like, how is that not then being theological? But it's being done on an individual level. Excellent insight. Let's go on to the individual books. Let's start with Ecclesiastes, because I think it's a really fun book, if nothing else, for that wonderful quote, there's nothing new under the sun. Sure. One of the interesting parts of wisdom and literature, at least for me, and again, I speak across the ancient Near East comparative element to it, wisdom literature was a genre where people could make claims that I don't think you would make a claim in any other context. It was a safe space. (laughs) For whatever reason, this type of literature was a place where you could talk about things, and in many cases, pessimistic things. Ecclesiastes is one of these books. This is an interesting book in that what it does is it outlines the limitations that mankind has. And you've got limitations elsewhere. I understand that. But this is where it explores where what man can do and what it can't do. 
it's interesting because in Mesopotamia, that is actually done through epics as well, which are larger narrative structures, right? Think Epic of Gilgamesh. That story is a pretty pessimistic story when you look at the overall arc of it. You got an individual who's a king, he wants to become immortal, and by the end of this, he doesn't even get rejuvenation. He fails on that. He gets back from his long journey, having failed in everything, having not accomplished what he wanted to do. But he looks at the walls of his city and says, this is a marvelous city. Look at what it is. And I'm lucky to be a king of it. And then the epilogue to this thing says, and these are your limitations. Don't go beyond a man. Find joy in your limitations. Well, that's very much an Ecclesiastes message. This idea that there are limits. You are going to die. Suffering is just a part of life. With that said, so appreciate what you've got, right? The famous Ecclesiastes, there's a time to die, there's a time to live, there's a time to weep, there's a time to sing. All of that stuff is to show there are limits to mortality, and the human existence is one that has limits. What it, to me, shows me more than anything else is a complexity and a recognition that the ancient world was as nuanced as ours is today. We don't think that. We tend to think the ancient world is, well, less cultured, less sophisticated, less, just less, because they don't have all the same modern stuff that we do. But the concerns that they had were exactly the same, and they certainly recognized the limits of their mortality probably even better than we do. Life expectations were much shorter. Lifespans were shorter. Health, you didn't have a doctor the same way that you do here. They were much closer to mortality and recognizing mortality in daily life than we ever are. And that shows up in this literature, at least in these places. They see it, and they know it. Did the Israelites articulate an existence past death? Yes and no. You can find it, but it's rare. So to LDS doctrine, the idea of the spirit world, we don't see that show up in the same format. And we've got a number of narratives that suggest there's life after death, but these are spotty verses scattered through different books. The story of Samuel and Saul and the witch, that's one that suggests that they know about an afterlife. The fact that we have funerary practices where you take care of the dead suggests that they see value in recognizing that they've moved on and that there's a different state. They're not just lumps of matter now. They still are family in some fashion. This all suggests that they do have an understanding of the afterlife, but they recognize it's different as well. And that can show up certainly by the New Testament time period when you have the Sadducees questioning Christ about marriage after death and that whole thing during the last week of his life, right? To this woman who's married, she married a man, he didn't have children, so she marries the next son, so on and so forth. They ask the question, whose is she in the in the resurrection? And Christ answers that question, but then he goes further and says, you didn't get this right anyway. You don't happen to believe in a resurrection. And the Sadducees don't. And the reason they don't believe in it is because there's no mention of an afterlife or a resurrection in the five books of Moses. If we talk reception history, then without that vision of an afterlife, the message of Ecclesiastes probably was more powerful. Well, again, what it emphasizes, as almost all wisdom literature does, is the mortal experience. And so to those, again, who make the case that this is secular literature, what I would say to that is I get that because the whole focus is on your mortal experience. It's not talking about salvation. It's not talking about eternal life. That's not a part of it. The concern is, is how do you get through mortality right now? And that's the function of wisdom literature more than anything else. How do you get through mortality? If it's practical advice, how do you move through the social structure of daily life? If it's that theology, it's what is the theology that gets you through a day-to-day? -day? 
if it's Ecclesiastes, what are the limits to mortality that you and I need to be aware of and concern ourselves with, and by virtue of that, know how to live a good, happy life for mortality? It's not literature that's concerned with these larger theological issues of salvation. Now, if that's why people say it's not theological, there you go. With that said, I think figuring out how to live a good day-to-day life is absolutely essential to a living theology. That's a great point to make. Let's talk about Job now. And we learned from a prior podcast that we did with Michael Austin that there is a Job past the first two chapters, a whole bunch of experience that we don't usually attribute to the book of Job when we're just going through it quickly, maybe in our gospel doctrine class. So walk us through Job briefly. Job would fit what I call as subgenre of wisdom literature. So if we said Ecclesiastes is a more pessimistic piece of literature, then Job fits the most pessimistic piece of literature. And again, it's all back to this daily stuff, right? If you're thinking of wisdom literature deals with how do you deal with a day-to-day experience, one of the biggest issues that the ancient world's dealing with is, is why do bad things keep happening? And we find that that type of literature is known as a theodicy right? A theodicy, or really any time you ask that question, where does evil come from? What is evil? Why do bad things keep happening to really, really good people? These are theodicies. And you can find theodicies across ancient Near East. The most pessimistic are by far Mesopotamian theodicies. There's a famous text in there of a man who's kind of complaining to his friend. It's Job, right? It's the same basic story. And the man's talking about how he's like, I've done everything. And his friend says, well, you ought to pray to God and trust in the gods. And he's like, I have. What I find is that the gods themselves somehow seem to treat the thief with greater wealth than those who bring their offering to the temple all the time. And so they do this back and forth, back and forth, just like you do in Job. One of the big differences is by the end of the piece, though, the man has clearly convinced his friend that the gods aren't to be trusted. This whole exchange, it's like, what can you do? The gods are inscrutable. They're unknowable. You don't know why they do what they do. It's better to stay under the radar then and just not engage with them because who knows why they're going to do what they do. You just don't know. That aspect of wisdom literature, theodicy, they're clearly trying to explain misfortune. Misfortune arises from these scenarios of which they don't have an explanation for. They're just a part of mortality. You'd like to say the gods are going to be able to judge that and treat things fairly. But as Mesopotamians are aware, that's not reality. The wicked seem to be treated just fine. And mortality seems to go okay for them. I see Job as a reaction to the timeless comment, God wouldn't give you anything you can't handle. And Job says, oh, yeah? You think so? Well, look at this. So here's the difference with Job. To that setup, what I just said. And when I do teach this, this is what I point out with Job. Job is unlike all those other theodicies, mainly because in the other theodicies that we have, and granted, maybe there's a whole bunch out there that we just, that were even more like Job, we just don't have. But the Job story, and there's a reason why we focus on these chapters, though maybe for the wrong reasons. The story of Job starts without Job. It starts in the divine realm, where there's God interacting with these other beings. The reason why that's a big deal is what you're told in the first chapter is why Job's going to go through what he goes through. That reason why is a big difference between Job theodicy versus other ancient Near Eastern theodicies. In the others, as I just said, 
we don't know why these things happen. They just happen, and the gods must do it, but we don't know why. Chapter 1 of Job changes that. You actually do know why. Now, the reader can disagree, and the reader can say that's maybe unfair, but now at least you know why God does what he does. As one great biblical scholar, I want to say it's Hackett, Joanne Hackett, if I'm remembering right, she wrote about Job. She points out what's interesting about that story is recognizing that the Satan figure, ha-Satan, that's the Hebrew, the Satan, when you throw that ha in there, that's the definite article, the, in Hebrew. And when you do that, now it's changed it from an actual individual into a position. That figure is pointing out a problem. When God's saying the world is all in order, everything's working great, and using Job as the example, the figure says, wait a minute, though, you've blessed Job, and therefore everything's great for Job. How do you know everything's actually working the way it should when you're blessing it and no one's experiencing that hardship? And to that scenario, then it's not Satan as you and I would know him as the adversary who's kicked out of heaven, but this divine figure who's pointing out, we don't actually know whether the world is working right. Because what we're doing is we've blessed this individual, and he's righteous, sure, but is his righteousness true without the blessing? If it is, then the world's working the way it should. So let's take away the blessings and see if he's still righteous. It seems to me that it's responding to other Job stories out there. Like so much of the Old Testament, it's their response. Okay, in all these other myths, we don't know why. But in our culture, in our religion, we know. Maybe. Maybe. Historical forces. Right. The reason I say that is, is there's nothing that, and I could be, I'll admit that I'm not necessarily the world's expert at this. But when I read Job, I don't see it engaging directly with any of these other traditions beyond the one that I just pointed out. There's clearly a divine explanation as to why he's doing what he does, which we don't find in other theodicies of the ancient Near East. Does the author know that? I can't say. It's there. That's what I can say. There's a difference between the Job and theodicy versus these other theodicies. Did the author know those differences? I don't know. Fair enough. We've already talked about the Proverbs a little bit. We've touched on them. Short, pithy statements, majorly from father to son. Give us an overview of Proverbs. Proverbs is a collection of sayings and teachings that can be divided in really two sections, though not equal. I really would look at the personification of wisdom, that's chapters 1 and 9, as its own kind of separate collection. It's got pithy sayings in there too, but they're all being coordinated into a larger narrative structure of wisdom, of your interaction with woman wisdom, with lady wisdom. She is treated as a not female counterpart of God because she's not equal with God, but certainly a female envoy of God. And there's power to that, right? So, So she's not a divine being and you don't worship wisdom, but she is a divine being that you can interact with and get a sense of what is the divine thinking that lies behind things. Wisdom is important. Chokmah is an important figure for the Israelite to get to know. It's more scribal. It's a little bit abstract. That's not daily advice the way you see it elsewhere. Then you get the collection after that, and that's pretty much made up of a series of sayings, of phrases, of maybe one-liners that just give good, basic, decent advice. How to be a good parent, how to be a good child are two of the biggest ones right there. I'm not saying it's a parenting how-to-do manual, but these are the interactions that Israel is maybe concerned with most. So how to be a good person in Israelite society is what makes up the rest of that. 
Excellent. You've given us some great things to think about. You teach wisdom literature in your ancient Near Eastern studies classes. What would you say wisdom literature contributes to our body of canon? The first thing I'd say, there isn't a lot of it, right? And so when the compilers put it together, they didn't put in probably as much as they could have. But without harping on something that I've been saying throughout, these books are great for understanding how to be a good, decent person. And you can say, well, Isaiah does that too. Yes, but they use these larger theological themes that deal with salvation, that deal with premortality, that deal with this. Wisdom literature is practical, great advice for day-to-day living. It's like religion on the ground. It is. And I used an example earlier. James does that, right? James, what is true religion? It's taking care of these individuals. It's not talking about why you do it for the celestial kingdom. It's not talking about how this is redemption. It's good practical advice. Notice that in James 2, what he's talking about? Bridle your tongue. Learn to control that thing, right? Which, if you look at the wisdom literature in Proverbs, it says the exact same thing. And when you look at Egyptian wisdom literature, its practical advice is learn to control your tongue. This is just good, basic, practical advice. Thanks, Dan. I really appreciated visiting with you today. My pleasure. Be sure to check out LDSperspectives.com to subscribe, catch up on past episodes, download transcripts, and find show notes. LDS Perspectives podcast is not affiliated with The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed represent the views of the guests or the podcasters alone. While the ideas presented may vary from traditional understandings or teachings, they in no way reflect criticism of LDS church leaders, policies, or practices.